Please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, our reading will be from verse 16 through verse 40, but our text will narrow in on just a couple of verses, verses 27 and 28, although we will have reference to the larger context. Acts 16, beginning in verse 16. This is God's holy word. It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into the house and set food before them, and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Now when day came, the chief magistrates sent their policemen, saying, Release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The chief magistrates have sent to release you, therefore come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now are they sending us away secretly? No, indeed, but let them come themselves and bring us out. The policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates. They were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and appealed to them. And when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. They went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. 
thus far the reading of God's holy word. There is much in the text that we have just read, and there's uh, so much that we could dig into and develop. We could consider the victory of Christ as it advances into new territory, and how Christ's messengers meet with uh, not just human opposition, but spiritual opposition, and how Christ reigns uh, victorious over these and overcomes uh, these impediments to the gospel. We could look at the advancement of the gospel, not only in spite of persecution, but even through persecution. We could look at the apostles' joy in the face of persecution, that they continue singing hymns even in prison. We could look at perseverance in prayer, the power of prayer and God's response to it, which shakes the earth. But we could look at the simplicity of faith, that, that verse that has brought so much comfort to so many, that, that question that perhaps has come to your mind at some point in your life, what must I do to be saved? And right there for you in the Bible, there's a verse that asks that very question, and the answer is, so beautiful in its simplicity, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We could consider the household principle that just before this in the chapter, you have Lydia and her household converting, and now you have the jailer and his household, and how the household follows the head of household in the faith, and what sort of implications that would have for our own homes and for evangelism. But with all of those things, I I want to instead focus in uh, on something else, what we find in verses 27 and 28. In the text, it's only two verses, and in the, the history, as it's unfolding in real time, it takes place very quickly. They're in uh, Philippi for, for several days, but, uh, but the, what we read here is, takes place in the span of perhaps less than a minute. It takes place very quickly, and yet it is so filled with meaning. It is so, uh, it's, it's a short period of time, but it is so pivotal because so much hangs for the life of the jailer, so much hangs on what takes place and transpires in these few seconds. It is a turning point for the jailer in which he is turned away from death and directed towards life. It's an instance where we see in narrative form the commands that were given elsewhere in Scripture. That we are told elsewhere in Scripture that we are to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. That we are not to respond to evil with more evil, but that we are to overcome evil with good. And here we have a narrative that shows us very concretely what that looks like. And as we consider these verses, we'll see that that Christians are called to, to love our enemies called to have compassion on those who persecute us because this is the disposition that God himself has towards sinners. That we are called to love our enemies precisely because God has loved 
his enemies. So as we consider this idea, we'll take it up under three points. Deceived, relieved, and believed. We see the jailer is deceived by appearances. We'll see that he is relieved by a word from the Apostle Paul. And then we'll see his response to that word that he believed. The gospel message. So first, let's consider the jailer as he is deceived by the appearances of what takes place. Paul and Silas are praying, and God responds to their prayers with uh, an earthquake that releases them from their bonds. The jail doors open. The jailer, who was charged to keep careful watch over these uh, prisoners, is awoken from his sleep. He comes, and he, he sees that the doors of the prison are open, and he begins to make assumptions and draw conclusions. He begins to figure out what happened while he was asleep and before he uh, fully took in the scene. He assumes that the doors are open and that, of course, then the prisoners must have run out. Certainly, the prisoners have fled. And this is, this is a reasonable conclusion. You might imagine what would happen today if there was a, a, a prison and... There was an earthquake that opened up uh, walls in the prison and opened up the jail cells. You, you might expect prisoners to make a break for it, to run for their freedom. And so this is the conclusion that the jailer comes to, that the prisoners have escaped. And then further, he concludes that this means trouble for himself. This means that he will quite possibly be executed in a painful way. Previously in Acts chapter 12, we've already seen something similar take place. Peter was arrested. He was put in prison. He was bound to two guards. And an angel of the Lord uh, appeared to him, released Peter, uh, took him out. But if you read that narrative in chapter 12, you read about the guards and Herod examines them. Herod calls them to account what happened to Peter. Where did he go? And he commands for the guards to be executed. So here in chapter 16, we have a jailer who has come to the conclusion that he will certainly die, he will certainly perish. And so he decides to end his life prematurely by drawing his sword and uh, preparing to fall on it. There's just one problem. It's all based on something that's not true. It's all based on an assumption that he has made and that he has carried out and let his mind run wild with, but that assumption is simply false. And it's leading him to a self-destroying act that he is moments away from sealing his eternal destination cut off from God, cut off from Christ. So much hinges on what happens in these moments for this jailer. About to be eternally 
lost. All because he has believed a deception. He has misunderstood reality. He has taken those false assumptions led, which have led him to false conclusions, and now it has led him to a self-destroying act. As we think about this in our own context, we recognize that there are unbelievers all around us who in some measure are, are doing precisely what the jailer is about to do in this verse. That they are under a false impression, false assumptions, they have come to false conclusions, and they are now engaged in self-destroying activities and behaviors. Perhaps the, the most direct uh, analogy we could make was with those who themselves in our own day would seek to take their own lives. And yet, such, uh, such thinking, such behavior is all based on a lie. It's based on a misreading of the circumstances. Uh, Kevin Hines and Ken Baldwin are two men who both... Uh, attempted to take their own lives by jumping off of the Golden Gate Bridge. And these are both men who survived. They survived not because they, they didn't jump, but because they did, and uh, they survived the impact, and they were rescued. And what's interesting about these two men is they recount their experiences and what they both have in common is that as soon as it was too late, as soon as they had cleared the railing and let go, they both say that they were filled with instantaneous regret, that all of a sudden it became clear to them that what had led them to that point was all a lie. And all of a sudden they realized that they had engaged in this self-destructive act on the basis of something that wasn't true. Kevin, a Roman Catholic, uh, reports that as he was falling, he cried out to God to save him and to spare his life. The thoughts that he said led him to that point were that he thought he was uh, a burden to his family, his family's greatest burden. He said, I thought I was useless. He looks at the circumstances around him, misinterprets it, comes to a false conclusion, and it leads him to destructive behavior. But it's not just uh, men like the jailer who are ready to fall on their sword, but all sin is in some measure self-destructive. You can think of bitterness. And this is something that even non-Christians will recognize. It's, it's a quote that is sometimes repeated, that holding on to a grudge is like drinking poison and expecting somebody else to get sick. And the idea there being that, that the grudge deforms the soul of the one who holds it just as much as it harms the object of that grudge. All forms of sexual immorality... 
that he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body, that there's, there's a self-harm that is a part of that. But as you consider uh, what God in, intends for marriage to be, and then you, you look at the, the counterfeits of it, moving from one uh, boyfriend to another, or from one girlfriend to another, living together, that it falls so far short of what a committed marriage is supposed to be. You can think of those who would uh, seek to alter their bodies because they think there's something fundamentally wrong with their bodies. And it leads them to uh, medical procedure after medical procedure in which they're only hurting themselves. You can think of something like anorexia, where there's this, this misconception of reality, a false conclusion that's reached about what my body is, is like. And it leads to uh, harmful, uh, uh, to, to self-harm in, in the way one eats. All sin, in, in some measure, is harmful, not just to other people, but to oneself. That sowing to the flesh results in reaping corruption from the flesh. So the jailer is deceived. Your non-Christian neighbors are deceived. And that deception leads them to false conclusions and to behave in ways that ultimately are hurting themselves even if they don't realize it. In our text, this is not the end for the jailer because he happens to be a jailer in whose custody is the Apostle Paul and the Apostle of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, an ambassador of God, one through whom God makes his appeal to sinners that they are to be reconciled to him. So we come now to our second point that the jailer is relieved. The Apostle Paul cries out with a loud voice in verse 28, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. We have here, in this very short verse, a beautiful demonstration of God's heart for self-destroying sinners being displayed through his ambassador, the Apostle Paul. Think about what Paul might have uh, thought about the jailer, what he, how he could have responded to the jailer. Here he is, a man who has been beaten with rods, uh, thrown into prison. Uh, the gospel message is, <clears throat> uh, by human appearances, being hindered. It, all of this has taken place without a trial. And here is the jailer who has brought them into the innermost parts of the prison, who has secured their, uh, their feet bound them fast in stocks, a man who is a part of the a system of oppression, a man who is a part of the problem. And Paul has a profound, mercying, pitying attitude towards him. Paul is not sitting in the inner jail cell, keeping quiet, as 
whispering under his breath, do it, do it. Paul is not sitting there with a smirk on his face saying, what poetic justice is about to take place. Uh, This one who oppressed the gospel is now about to fall by his own hand. He's not sitting there with a lukewarm indifference. Well, if he, if he puts down his sword and he comes far enough into the prison and finds that we're still here, I'll share the gospel with him. Rather, Paul urgently, with a loud voice, as an ambassador of the gospel, begins to make an embassy to this man, and he calls out to him, don't hurt yourself. We're all here. Step away from the conclusions and the sword that you have drawn. Because things are not as they appear. What I want for us to see this evening is how this is God's attitude towards sinners. That God's attitude towards sinners is one in which he invites them to be reconciled, to step away from the sins that are so harmful to themselves, that lead themselves into destruction, and to come to the alternative, which is life in his son, Jesus Christ. And having understood that, to see that same attitude cultivated within our own hearts, To sincerely desire with the same urgency that as we look around us and we see sinners who are engaged in all kinds of self-destructive behavior, not to respond with anger, not to respond with a desire to see these people uh, destroy themselves as quickly as possible so that they can be out of the way. Not to uh, wish everything to burn down to the ground as quickly as possible so we can start building anew. But instead, to sincerely pity and desire that the sword be put down. To, To not view those who are engaged in this kind of behavior as obstacles to the gospel mission, but as objects of the gospel mission. And I have a concern that that is something that the church widely in our country might be in danger of losing. That our response is, at least as it's displayed online and sometimes even in in print media, That if you ask, what is the church's attitude towards self-destroying sinners? I'm afraid that too much so, it could be characterized as anger, as cheering them on in their self-destroying habits and behaviors. And not nearly enough, what we read in Acts 16, 28, a disposition that says, Do yourself no harm. 
We're all here. God is ready to be reconciled to you. God is ready for you to be reconciled to him. Now, how we go about doing that may be very difficult. But more than the, the practical means by which we go about doing this, I'm, I'm concerned first and foremost with that, that heart attitude that we have towards our neighbors. Thinking on that question of how is it that we go about telling our neighbors not to harm themselves when they believe what they're doing really is in their best interest, when they don't see that what they're doing to themselves is harmful, uh, how do we persuasively get them to step away from what they are doing and what they're about to do? And that requires wisdom. That requires the work of the Holy Spirit. And so it's something that we must attend to with prayer. It's going to vary case by case. But I'll just make a few observations with respect to that. That as we seek to relieve our neighbors with the good news, first there must be an insistence on the truth that what they are doing is truly harmful. That we love our neighbors not by keeping quiet in the jail cell, not by waiting for them necessarily to come to us first, but to be active, to be outgoing, to use a loud voice at times, not a loud voice in anger, but a loud voice in in urgency, a, a loud voice that is outreaching. Secondly, notice that in addition as to being a matter of prayer and, and wisdom, that Paul speaks to the immediate concerns of the jailer. He doesn't open with a gospel presentation immediately. He doesn't say, don't hurt yourself because here's the gospel. But he speaks to the situation. He speaks to the concerns and the fears of the jailer, and he says, we're all here. That's what the jailer is most concerned about. And Paul recognizes that, and so he speaks to that situation. So there has to be not just a a speaking past our neighbors, but addressing them contextually, recognizing what is it, what's, what's the falsehood that they've believed, what are the concerns that they have, and and how can we address that situation, that context, without speaking past them. But then finally, there is the presentation of the gospel, Paul speaks the word of the Lord to them, that we, we must not stop short of that, that without the preaching of the gospel, without a presentation of the gospel, Paul may have saved the man's life in a temporal sense, but ultimately he's not left off any better if, he's, if Paul leaves this man without Jesus Christ. Now, finally, we see this jailer's response uh, to Paul's compassionate cry to him not to hurt himself, to Paul's uh, words of relief as he speaks the word of the Lord to him. He believes with his house, and that belief manifests itself in, in two ways, or it's a belief that, that works itself out in love, and I just want to point out two things 
One is the, the beautiful picture of washing that we see in verse 33. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his. The text doesn't say it explicitly, but it's so juxtaposed within one verse, within one sentence, that it, that it almost makes you seem that it's that here's the, here's the basin that the, the jailer is, is using to wash the apostle's wounds, and so he's taking a rag and, and dabbing up the clotted blood. And then either Paul or Silas, in turn, takes that same water and applies a washing to the jailer. Furthermore, the jailer sets food before uh, Paul and Silas and prepares a table for them. Would you have believed, if you had been a prisoner, perhaps you've been in jail for a little bit longer than, than Paul and Silas had been, and you saw these two men uh, dragged into the jail and fastened in the stocks, would you have believed that before morning came, that the jailer and these two men would be washing each other and that the jailer would be setting food before receiving these men into his home and setting food before them and nourishing them? Would you have believed that there is a message and uh, a power at work in the world that is so powerful that it can take these, these two men who are apparently opposed to each other, at least in, in the disposition of the jailer towards the prisoners, so opposed to each other, and work such a profound transformation that we're left with this, this scene of, of washing wounds and baptism and a common meal together? That's what Jesus Christ can do in the gospel. And do you believe that Jesus Christ is still powerful? Do you believe that the gospel is still powerful? To do that with people that you would consider your enemies? People that you would consider are antagonists to the church? People that you would consider uh, as, as uh, being oppressors? and even persecutors? Do you believe that the gospel can take an enemy and in Christ put that person at a table with you? Well, indeed, the gospel can do that because it's the gospel of our God through his son, Jesus Christ, who died for sinners. It's the gospel of a God who is rich in mercy it's the gospel of a God whose disposition towards sinners is that they should be reconciled towards him. So let us, as we remind ourselves of God's own pity, take his character into our hearts more and more and demonstrate that same pitying love to those who would oppose the gospel to those who might be considered enemies of the gospel, to those who would persecute us. And let us expect a God who is so great in mercy 
right, to produce a, a fruit from that, to even produce a, a hospitality, a table fellowship from that, that could not be expected from any other power except from the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you for uh, this mercy that in the gospel you cry out to us not to harm ourselves, but to come and be reconciled to you that you set a table before us. We thank you that we now have uh, this very evening uh, the joy of celebrating the Lord's Supper. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.